I'm ready when you are. You can feel the country's on the knife edge. It's only, what, 30 minutes late starting? Let's do this! <laughs> it's a joke, obviously. You are in retreat. We're not rioting yet. I don't like that question. You're just saying shit and you don't even know what you're talking about. That spider gate sounds way cooler than manta rays, doesn't it? And I was like, well, here's my two cents. You, you, you need a lot of stuff. That's how we should describe the podcast. If they ever went out and recruited one more person, then we'd have double the number of people listening. Well then. Let's start the show. Welcome back, Brad fans. How's everybody doing? Uh, welcome back, Brad. Nice to see you. Well, thank you. I, I wondered if you were going to get to me. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Yeah, doing good. Doing great. Uh, happy to be back for another episode. Uh, number 33, I believe. I think that's uh, about right. And I know I've been traveling a little bit for, for work and personal reasons sick, but uh, you've been uh, on the international tour of uh, podcasting as well. I mean, you could call it that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, international, you're in a different country, yeah. so... Czech Republic is a different country. Works. I was in yeah. Prague, gave a little workshop talking about podcasting. Still, for the life of me, I don't know why they asked me to do it, uh, but hey, I pretended to be professional and, you know, put a button-up shirt on. Ooh, my word, yeah. you really splashed the cash. Yeah, talked to, talk to some physics students about science communication and podcasting. Just a couple of them seemed keen on it, so maybe we'll see some, some podcasts in the future. Uh, check our website and Twitter, because if, uh, if some of these students do start making stuff, I am going to promote that. I'll tweet it out there. There was one guy yep. who's based in Russia, which I believe he did an interview with me, so I was on the flip side of it. Ah. So I believe he... Looks like he's going to post that stuff, so I'll link all that stuff out there, and we'll, uh, yeah, so we'll see where he goes with it, and we could have a, you know, an, another fellow podcaster, podcaster that would in the be world. Cool. Well, especially especially physics, because as you, you and I have touched on before, you and I love the subject, but no, no, very little about it. Shit, all one could say. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I didn't want to put a technical term on it, but you know, you've you've stepped up to the plate and done so. So, <laughs> well. Here's here's where I want to jump to with that, because here's something that everyone else seems to know shit all about, and you're the man on the inside, so maybe you could uh, you could brief us all as to what the hell is happening in huh. the UK with the Brexit. I know this is a topic that most British people I know here in Marburg are a little sensitive to talk about, but um, I mean, it is all the news. I figured we may as well give our listeners you know, a bit of perspective on it. Uh, after they have just what granted an extension for like two days that we're recording on the 10th so by friday you're supposed to be out again yeah well yeah i i yeah so where do we where do we start well i did see that there was some guy on ebay selling uh british independence day 29th of march 2019 t-shirts on ebay <laughs> uh, at a discounted price well now at a very heavily discounted price so yeah you're correct as as it currently stands we should have left on the 29th of march we didn't 
So we should be leaving on the 12th of April. Uh, you won't. Out. <laughs> we won't. Um, in the meantime, Parliament have passed uh, legislation really quickly, um, which has pissed some people off that we, it's, we're not allowed to leave without a deal. Right. But that's not really up so, to you. Well, it is and it isn't. This is where it would get interesting because if, as the meetings that are going on in Brussels or Dublin or wherever they are today, um, falls through and we don't get offered an extension, then the option on the table is we revoke Article 50, which is within our power to do, so yeah. therefore we wouldn't at all leave, or we leave without a deal. But if we do that, then we would be breaking our own law. So, Right. Yeah. So To clarify <clears throat> this just a little bit, and you know, tell me if my understanding is wrong, or maybe you don't have any better well, understanding. I was, than... was going to say, yeah, I can't guarantee I'll know the answer because this is generally what you know the the situation as outsiders looking in, you know, reading, you know, CBC. <laughs> but they're looking in, going, "What an absolute fucking mess!" Yeah, trust me, I'm I'm on the inside, and it's much the same. <laughs> right. Um, it seems that yeah, they've nobody wants to be left holding the bag of what happens in this. So Parliament is more or less saying, well, we want we don't we want to leave, but we don't want to leave with a deal. So let's make an agreement or a law or something with in no Parliament. Deal. With yeah, no deal. yeah, with no deal. Yeah. Um so let's make an agreement or a law or something in Parliament saying that we won't do that. But that doesn't satisfy everybody in Parliament. Some people are saying, no, let's just get out of here. Um but the it's it's like you keep making these internal uh, agreements or suggestions as like we're not going to do this but we're not going to do this but ultimately it the eu is also there being like well you guys can say all this stuff all you want but we we're here you know like we're not negotiating anymore with you so it seems like there's all this internal squibbling going on and the eu's just standing there being like figure it out uh so does this any of this even really matter these these you know well we've made an agreement in parliament to not leave without a deal like, does it really mean anything? I mean, I guess the way yeah. you just said it now is that it does set up a chance to revoke Article 50, but would that even would that even happen? Well, yeah, that's the thing. And I think if they did that, I think... And this is what's really amazed me. It's polarised the nation so much. There's no... There's no comment... There's no grey area now. People are really staunchly, well, let's just leave or let's just remain. Mm -hmm. And there's not really that grey area in the the middle so for those that are like well we want to get out no matter what the cost the fact that we've passed this legislation saying we, we shouldn't leave without a deal if we were then to turn around and say okay well we're going to revoke article 50 I, there would be riots on the street yeah no doubt um i in a way i feel sorry for Theresa may because she's damned if she does and yeah damned if she don't um and from a negotiation point of view i you know I have to assume they know what they're doing, these politicians, but it just seems to me as if it's been, rightly or wrongly, we had a referendum, I believe wrongly, but we had a referendum, we had a vote that was very, very close, and because of that we've changed the course of this nation that will have a massive impact for generations to come. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some issues around, around that. I guess Europe forced our hand a little bit in that they basically said, well, we're not negotiating until you implement article 50 which then we had to do but it seems that we we've left all the negotiation to the the 11th hour mm -hmm. you know it's only the last couple of weeks that parliament have really had full-on debates about alternatives and how we can make this work 
surely you should have been doing this two years ago when we first had Article 50 and then formulating a deal as opposed to the government just going off and, you know, generating a deal which now, what, they voted on it two and a half times? Yeah. Because they only voted on half the deal last time and it's just not going through. So, I don't know. You have to assume these people know how to negotiate. I guess it's not easy when your hand's being tied a little bit, but I think my biggest issue or my biggest worry is that the government are playing party politics and this is bigger than party politics. This is a a cross-party issue that I Mm -hmm. think, you know, they need to put their party beliefs aside and say, right, what is right for the country? If if we're going to follow through with the referendum result and leave, then what is right for the country? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe it's not right that we leave and maybe we have a second vote. There's a big movement, obviously, for the people's vote and there's been a big petition for that. Or whether, you know, if, if they trusted the public to make the vote the first time around on whether we leave Europe, then why not trust the public with a vote on what the deal is and whether we accept well, it? Well, because they saw what the public did. <laughs> and they're like, maybe we don't want to do that again. <laughs> well, exactly. So, but then, you know, we have politicians who make big decisions, yet they shirk the biggest decision, which was to give the public a referendum. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. why not keep shirking responsibilities? So I just have a couple things on this that I'd like to get your perspective on. Do you think that a lot of the uh, problems right now is because of promises that were made by the Leave side that they now can't deliver on? You know, this idea of them being like, well, this is going to be such an easy negotiation. We're going to get everything we want. We have all the power, which is crazy to think in the first place when you're, you know, the EU standing there being like, you're the ones who want to leave. Like, we're not going to make this easy on you. <laughs> But anyway, so that now you're in a situation where they don't want to back back down from and give concessions and are, you know, poo-pooing this deal because they've said all this stuff and it's a, you know, trying to save face. Or do you think that they don't really care about what they said at all? I, I don't think they do care. I, I, I think there were... I think there was lies told on both sides... I think there were probably more lies told on the the benefits of leaving mm-hmm. by the those that wanted to leave. But I think the big thing is nobody's done this before, so nobody nobody knows. And it's only the last two or three months that, that on over here there's been radio ads, TV ads, paper ads for go to this website and you can see what the impact is on your business, on your mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. travel arrangements, on whatever. But that's the sort of information we should have been given two and a half years ago before we went and vote on what the impact would be because nobody knew what the impact was. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And even now, nobody's 100% sure what the impact's going to be because we haven't agreed a deal. But it would have been more sensible to me to give us some of this information unbiasedly two and a half, three years ago before we voted on the referendum than giving it to us now three years down the line when we've got a gun to our head saying, well, you're leaving on 29th of March, 12th of April. Yeah. 30th of June, whatever it's going and to be. And there's now. really no incentive for the EU to give you any better of a deal. In fact, their, no, their exactly. incentive is probably to make this as difficult as possible so that the rest of yeah. any time any sort of populist government pops up in Europe that starts talking trash about the EU, they want to be able to say, look, it, it's not easy to leave and it's yeah, not in your benefit exactly. to leave. So, um, uh, Yeah, and I, th- I think we're... Who knows what's going to happen? When we eventually leave, it could be a massive success. Nobody knows. It could be a massive disaster. Nobody knows. It's going to be an experiment, I guess, and we're going to find out one way or the other. I think the the benefit is, I guess, where the UK is a big enough 
big enough economy and country probably to ride the storm, although I th I think it could be a bumpy ride. Mm -hmm. um, but still, nobody's 100% sure about that. You know, if our, our economy is very reliant on our trading partners, which predominantly is with Europe. Yeah. So if it all goes tits up, yeah. you know, maybe we will need to start charging this for, for this podcast because I'll need to generate revenue. So, something. you know, all... <laughs> yeah, all you know, all fifty-six listeners might really need to chip in. But, uh, <laughs> hey, I get paid in in pounds too for some of my jobs, and so if the pound tanks, I'm screwed too. Well, you know, you're fine when you import that back into any other currency because. The... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, one more quick one. Do you? Okay. I mean, you're obviously you were a remainer. Yeah. Um, I assume that most of the people you sort of talk with about this were also Remainers or do you have a sentiment of what you know from your community your sort of personal relationships of what a lever is thinking of this whole situation because I mean I'm, yeah. I'm caught in the bubble of, of the Remainers right right and I yeah, wonder yeah. if you are too um so yes I, yeah I guess there's two parts of my answer to that. so I would say the majority of people I'm surrounded by were remainers, but there I there I do have some leavers mm -hmm. in there that are friends. Um what's really hard and, and I'm just sort of joking about this with some friends last night actually, or wasn't really joking. It's really hard to have a conversation on this that doesn't get really heated and really emotional and people walking out of the room mm -hmm. and leaving WhatsApp groups and unlike any other conversation I've seen you know yeah. sport is about the only thing that i've seen polarized people quite yeah quite so much um but yeah the, the people that i speak to that voted leave that um that are within my age group i know quite a few that voted leave that were in the older age group mm -hmm. um all say it because they yeah they they wanted the reason they did it is they wanted to regain control of that our borders um they're worried about the influx of mass immigration that's you know being unchecked um, Which doesn't really exist, but well, and I get we can yeah, it's a different. We'll come back to yeah. that bit. Um, so that's part of it, and and the fact that they are staunch in their belief that it's going to really give a shot in the arm to our economy because you know we're going to start manufacturing again and start having industry again. Mm. Um, which maybe we will, but I I just think you know the reason we don't have industry and we don't have manufacturing capabilities on the scale that we used to is because other countries do it cheaper. And those countries aren't just in Europe. Those yeah. countries are China. elsewhere. Yeah, China being the big one. So the plan is that we're going to set up all these trade deals with other countries. So I I, I don't see steel factories reopening. Yeah. I don't see coal mines reopening. I Yeah. So I'm but maybe I'm wrong. I don't yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Well good luck. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you know, the internet keeps working so I can, uh, you know, have some sane conversation once we shut all the borders and we're not allowed to communication anywhere else and we become like Russia. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe once this is all over, people can go back to yelling each at each other and bottling each other about football and not politics, so. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> All right. I, I thank you for giving your perspective. I'm sure it's painful to to revisit this every day. Um, 
it's it's just the fact like before you came on you're like oh, i might ask you about brexit so I, thought, oh, I better just check what's going on today because i do follow the news every day but you get a little bit oh good. and the bbc have had some great flow charts of what happens if we say no to yeah, this i've seen and those, then every yeah. day every day they've had to rewrite the flow chart because we've gone totally off piece <laughs> so uh, all right well shall we move on one disaster to the next uh, it's almost like we rehearsed that in pre-production. Could have been, could have been. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Do you want to take the wheels for this one? I know you've uh, yeah, you've been our guiding light on this one in the past. Well, so you know, the it's the age-old uh, two Brad for you favorite. It's time for the Ebola update. Ooh. And that's right, it, it d- is still going on. Ebola has not gone away in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, so... Just briefly, since because I mean I think we last touched on this in February was the last time you and I <coughs> did an episode. Um, so just in the last in the first week of April, there was a bit of a bump in the numbers of people that have died. Uh, so a hundred a hundred more deaths occurred, and that has brought the overall death toll of this outbreak uh, to seven hundred or just over seven hundred. Um, so that so that rate is slow. Because I think the last time we did it, we were on about 550, something like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So, and I mean, I think if I remember last time we did, I tried to do a bit of a comparison about the numbers bumping up, and I haven't looked back at those, but it looks like, I mean, by all accounts, this is still slower than a lot of other outbreaks. And I mean, slower. This has been going on since about April or no, August of last year. So when the epidemic was in Congo was uh, declared. And so now you have a total of like uh, overall cases, about 1,000, 1,100, something like this, uh, 702 deaths, um, and 339 people who have recovered. Um, but they said as of late last week, late last Friday, so the 5th of April, they were investigating another 295 suspected cases. So those numbers could go up um, okay. again. But this is, like we mentioned in previous podcasts, this is the first time that a lot of the new treatments are being available. So vaccines being being the biggest one. And I think it's the, the health ministry data from the Democratic Republic of Congo are saying that uh, more than 95,000 people have been getting a dose of the RVSV Zbov vaccine. So this is the one that was easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah, it is Zbov. <laughs> uh, this is the one from Merck Laboratories. So I know in previous episodes we sort of broke down all the different vaccines, but um, yeah, so ninety-five thousand people—that's a lot. And they and you know the 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 conventional wisdom on this is that this is saving lives. This is really helping, um, but. Of course, the World Health Organization is saying that, you know, there's still the risk of national and regional spread um, and that they estimate that this will at least take another six months to fully to fully deal with. I mean, I'm assuming that is if everything stays as it is and it doesn't escalate further. Um, And this is obviously due to some of the things that we've talked about previously, fighting in the area um, and then resistance of some of the communities for seeking treatment. So the fear of, of doctors and, you know, foreign groups operating in there and, and the mistrust with the local authorities. 
So there was a recent study from one of the cities in the Congo, a city called Benai, <laughs> and another one called Butembo, and they found that only a third of the population in these cities trusted local authorities to help them, and more than a quarter of the people in these cities believed that Ebola didn't exist. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that report in the news. Yeah. So that's kind of what they're dealing with. So even though we have these great tools, these vaccines and stuff like that, uh, that has been able to help contain what could be a probably larger outbreak, there's still this mistrust and then the violence. You know, there's armed groups that operate in that area. There's civil conflict there that have been um, hampering it. So the other interesting thing that I wanted to update on is that in light of this, you know, there's kind of been a shift in the emphasis uh, of the response strategy. So there, lots of groups are trying to have greater community engagement. Um, you know, to work with those people to build that trust um, in the areas where they're operating. And one of the things that they've done is they've set up, uh, and I don't know exactly where in the country, but a um, a eye clinic for survivors of Ebola. So, you know, this is, they're trying to provide better care for the survivors of Ebola. Um, Cause I don't know if we talked about it on Too Bad For You, this might harken back to the old where's my glasses days. But if you, if you don't know, Ebola is a thing. So after you've, after you've survived the Ebola infection and you're cleared, uh, what they found yeah. was that bits of the virus can persist in the eyeball. So we, you know, cleverly termed it eyebola. Uh, but okay. it can be... It, no, no, nothing to do with Apple. Let's just make no. that very clear. <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, and it can cause problems, obviously, if you get like a, you know, your immune system's trying to fight this, this virus that's in your eye that can cause damage, or you can get actual like swelling in the eye, um, this kind of thing. So yeah, they've set up this... Um, eye care training program. Oh, it's in Benai, the city that we were just talking about. It's a combined effort of the WHO and the Ministry of Health and a team of ophthalmologists from Emory University and the University of North Carolina. So a total of 252 uh, Ebola survivors get screen were screened in the eye clinic. Um, the and 10 local ophthalmologists were trained to provide higher level of eye care in their communities. The feedback from the program was uh, very positive, both from the survivors and the healthcare providers, the local healthcare providers. Um, so yeah, they're just, it's things like this, they're trying to build the trust and then actually, you know, everything that we've learned in the past of all the outbreaks about what problems, challenges the survivors have, uh, they're actually addressing that. And so hopefully that will, you know, send the message that, hey, we're not just here, um, out of curiosity and you know yeah. all of this stuff is like no we're here to help we're here to stay um and i think anytime that you're building up the local uh health care infrastructure you're doing a lot to stem the uh outbreak from spreading so that's actually you know probably one of the best ways if you, if you as a person in europe or north america are worried about ebola um, one of the best things that we could be, our governments can be doing is actually helping build up the healthcare infrastructure in these countries, uh, so that they can deal with these program or problems and not have well, them spread. So, 
a wider effect than just the bowler. You know, if you're building up the healthcare mm-hmm. and surveillance, you know, you're going to catch other things as well, aren't you? So right. it's, that can only be a win-win. But the, when I saw the stat, and you touched on it there, and I, I, I saw the headline about, what did you say, about a quarter, a third of people just didn't believe a bowler even existed in these mm-hmm. areas. What I'd like to do is drill down in that into that number a bit, and I, I don't know if you have it there, but it'd be interesting to know Presumably those family members that have lost people to Ebola probably aren't in that 25%, that 30%. They think it doesn't exist. So, you know, where are they conducting that survey? Is it in parts that haven't seen it? Right. Or is it, you know, that to me would be interesting. So I know we've talked about before, people, you know, people in these countries thinking that it's a, a westernised thing. It's a way of, you know, the westerners have brought it in to yeah. wipe out the population or infect the population. So yeah. There's a lot of rumors about that, you know, sort of yeah. colonial past of they've come in here to eradicate us or subjugate us or something like this. I'm not sure exactly yeah. what all the conspiracy theories are, but I've definitely heard that one before. Probably in a chemtrail somewhere. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's the Ebola update. So hopefully they rem- they remain on the positive side of it and can keep it contained. Um like we've mentioned before a million times, it'll be interesting to see the vaccine data after the uh, after the outbreak is over. And yeah, hopefully some of these programs will give us a better idea of the long-term effects for Ebola survivors. Ebola, I think it also persists in the testicles. That was another one. So you can actually, it can be transmitted sexually, I believe, even after Maybe that was um, when they found it in the testicles or the sperm. They didn't know if it was transmissible, but, I mean, there's a chance. Um, I'm going off memory here now from the last outbreak two years ago. So, uh, But anyway, that's your Ebola update. Well, no, then it's, it, it's good to be back in the world of Ebola. <laughs> it's obviously from a distance. Yeah. No. <laughs> right on. Uh, I'm up next again, right? Moving right along. Yeah, yeah, you, you're swinging and hitting, so keep going, my oh, friend. Oh, man, jeez, I'm going to get, my voice is going to get tired here. Uh, well, but I'm not going to get tired of your voice. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That just warms my heart. The listeners will, obviously, yeah, they... but, you know, I, I can push I can push the mute button on this thing. <laughs> it's, it's just got you dancing like a trained chimp in front of me, but, you know. Uh, yeah, iPods are f- turning off all across the nation right now. Um, Much like eyeballers are. <laughs> All right. Well, then, my next story for you, Bradley, is about DNA. Oh, have I done, have I done something wrong for a moment then when I heard the word Bradley? Yeah, you don't hear very often, eh? I don't. Um, uh, DNA. DNA. Yeah. Okay. You've heard of it. Uh, I've heard of it. I know what it is. Not in any, obviously, you know, to the level of being a PhD scientist in it, but... All right, well, uh, yeah. let, let's just do a brief rundown of what it is. Um, it's the molecule that encodes all of our, you know, genetic information. It's in the classic double helix that most people have probably seen, this double helix formation, and it's made up of what we call base pairs, DNA base pairs. So they've there's four of them um, labeled A, G, C, and T, a and T always bind together, G and C always bind together. And this is what gives you a stable um, double helix molecule. And this base pairing that's very predictable also makes, this is what gives it the predictability. So we know if we have an A, we're going to get a T. 
and you can build this code <coughs> and this sort of programming language based on this. So this is what makes DNA so great is that it's stable, it's predictable, it's programmable, um, and then it can also be translated from DNA into what we call RNA. So the, the machinery of your body will read the, GN, the DNA code, um, take that code and translate it into an, another set of molecules that then builds the proteins and everything of your body. Okay. So this is you know, more or less how DNA works. And the final thing that makes DNA so great is that it's self-sustaining. It can be, in, as long as it's in an environment where it's not gonna fall apart and degrade and stuff, it will replicate, it will you know, be alive, basically. Um, so this is what makes DNA great. This is why it's perfect for evolution and perfect for programming living things. And it's also why, since we've discovered it, people have always been fascinated in, well, how do we use this code? How do we program DNA to do things? You see it with gene editing, um, and there's even talk of like biological computers, things like this. So instead of having just a zero, one binary programming language, you could have a four number or four option programming language with the four base pairs. But what if we had even more than four? Think about it. Well, uh, what? It would be confusing. Because <laughs> it took me a long time. It, it collars and things to get my head around the four piece. But obviously, you know, as you said, the binary piece, you know, four, four gives you more options than two. I'm guessing five, six, seven, eight gives you more options than four. Exactly. And so this is what a group, well, a group kind of spread across the U.S. It's a number of different uh, universities in the U.S. published a paper in February um, in the journal Science where they've created four additional synthetic base pairs for DNA. So bumping the number up to eight. So people had previously okay. you know, experimented with six, but now this is, this is now the largest synthetic um, DNA chunk that what they've made. So there's eight base pairs okay. in this. Um, and so those things that I mentioned would make DNA so great um, and useful. Um, this group went through and tested their new, you know, four base pairs in exactly this way. And they found that, yes, it is stable. They can incorporate these four synthetic base pairs into a base pair or into a stretch of DNA with the original four base pairs. And you have a stable molecule. Um, it's predictable. They know how it will operate um, at different temperatures and, you know, chemical conditions. So if you heat it up, it's going to, the, the helix will break. If you cool it down, the helix will come back together. So it has all the predictable properties that normal DNA does. Um, okay, but these, so these base pairs, are they... Are they pairing just within themselves, or are they able to pair with the four? Yeah, I don't know pairs? what the combinations are. I don't know what the combinations okay. are. They want me to pay for the paper. Like I'm supposed to pay oh, well, for this to get the the full details. You and I, and I think we've had this discussion before. The list. This is not. This is not what we do, listeners. You know, <laughs> we don't pay for things. If, if you, no, we don't pay for things. You know, we we don't bootleg things either. Let me make that very clear. We take our sources from right. free source, open source right. areas. Um. But, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't pay for things. Right. You know, the limit of our science stops when we need to pay yeah. for it. When we've hit that paywall. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't know what the base pairing combinations are, but I imagine okay. that they would either pair with themselves. Um, but I mean, that's all you would need. You know, you would just have again yeah. still another four combinations that would code for different things. Um, so you have the stability, you have the programmability. Uh, it does uh, form a double helix. So the double helix is important in terms of um, being compact. I think in the in like in a cell. So like you can if you were to unwind all the DNA in your body at some ungodly you know length. It's something like here to the moon or something like that. I can't remember what the actual data is, but yeah. Suffice to say, there's a lot of it, and having a double helix structure helps it be compact. Um, and it's translatable. So they wanted to see if we could, if they could use this, you know, in the same way that DNA is used. So can we translate it from DNA, take that DNA encoded message, give it to machinery, enzymes, uh, similar to those in the body that would then translate that message into the protein that, you know, you're coding for or whatever. Um, and yeah, they were able to make synthetic enzymes that work with this synthetic DNA to translate it. So it basically has all the hallmarks of DNA, except that it's eight base pairs and not four. So they're calling it Hachimoji DNA. Oh, of course they yeah. are. Yeah, of Japanese guy came up with it, and I guess Hachimoji somehow means eight bases or eight letters or something like this in Japanese. My apologies. My Japanese is non-existent. A little rusty. Yeah, just yeah. a little. And the one thing that they stopped short on testing, though, was the self-sustainability of these molecules. So they didn't let them sort of persist in an environment to see if they would survive uh, because for fear of them getting out and actually incorporating with DNA in the world. Like you could get so, this like yeah, okay, so rogue DNA that, And that was going to be one of my questions. So, so one of my questions is going to be, what's the point in this? And the other question was going to How be... How dangerous is it? What are, yeah, what are the implications of this? <laughs> yeah. So they were worried about it getting out and sort of, you know, running rampant. You know, if you have, if it gets out into an environment and, you know, bacteria are constantly sucking up bits of DNA and, and incorporating them into their genome, uh, viruses facilitate that and also do similar things. So in theory, if this molecule, you know, is as, as what they say it is, uh, a good working form of DNA, it could be incorporated, picked up by some bacteria, and then, you know, who knows what would happen. Um, so they did stop short on that uh, parameter. So that's, I guess, the kind of the dangerous thing. Uh, the next question you had is, like, who cares? Why? What What are the implications? Who gives a, a hoot? As well, that's the other way yeah. of putting it, yeah. Uh, so it actually, they look at it as a way of forming hypotheses about potential alien life. So if alien life is out there and it's DNA-based, it may look completely different than our DNA, use different base pairs. Okay. So this kind of proves that that's possible, that you could have different... Um, base pairs or molecules. <laughs> um, great. Right Sorry, right into the microphone. Thank you for that. <laughs> you can hit the mute button on that. Oh my word. <clears throat> um, so yeah, you could have you could have different base pairs or molecules in theory 
acting as a DNA molecule. Um, so it just kind of goes to show that, yeah, maybe life out there won't be based on the GCAT format, but it will have some other bases, but it will still be this double helix genetic molecule that programs life and blah, 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 <clears throat> blah, 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 all that stuff. Okay. So there's that. But then there's the implications for us and our biology in kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of this piece here, where you have increased storage capacity. So you can store more bits of data because you have these four extra letters to okay, code in. Okay, yeah. That makes and sense. then there's binding site specificity. So I'm trying to think this through because you have you know, your DNA uh, codes for proteins, right? And proteins are made up of these different amino acids. And they interact with yeah. each other through these like binding sites, these like lock and key mechanisms where a protein will bind to, uh, you know, say another protein that's on the surface of your cell. And that <coughs> opens it up and allows, you know, different things that you need in the cell in there or it closes it off or, you know, two proteins come together to form another molecule that this is basically yeah. all the building blocks of your body, all the processes of basically all of life are these proteins and molecules that interact with each other in these lock and key formations. And some of the binding <coughs> sites are very, very specific, and we can't, say, develop drugs uh, for some of these binding sites because we can't figure out how to get in them or we don't have enough you know, molecules to attach there. So with these, I guess with this, this greater ability to build a larger you know, DNA code and therefore like a more intricate protein or a larger protein, you, they figure they can get better binding site specificity so they could lock in with some of these binding sites better or tighter or, again, I'm not sure the, the complete logic behind it and I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here, but that's that's the idea behind it. And I mean, it's, it's really cool okay. if you think about the idea that we have, you know, CRISPR and stuff like this to to make DNA and synthesize DNA, if you can expand the storage capacity of DNA, I mean, it just, I've said it before, people, well, biotechnology, gene editing, I'm all for it, let's do it, let's, <clears throat> this is... Well, well, you know, we've always talked about, you know, having a in Canadian hockey stick for an arm, maybe this DNA will, you know, give some sort of X-Men like powers so that, you know, it could be a reality flash and not just an artificial stick stitched on. Actually, grow your own. Almost. <laughs> I mean, if I had the, uh, the ability to grow anything, would I grow a hockey stick? I don't know. We'll see. Well, you're Canadian. <laughs> so I feel pretty certain the hockey stick would be high up the list, if not top. Yeah. No, I mean it's an interesting, I, I guess, proof <clears throat> of concept um, that you can do this. I think the alien life thing is is cool because until you you know, we can speculate all we want about as to what life might be on other planets. Uh, our only frame of reference is sort of genetic DNA-based life, but this just shows that even DNA or, as we term it, genetic life like this yeah. um, isn't necessarily what we think it's going to be. So, I mean, we still have to find well, something out there before we can start going down that road but it's an interesting thing and then like i said just the ability to even if we're not doing genetic editing in people the idea of a biological computer based on dna that can do computations um that's a programming language and stuff like that if you can expand 
you know, what nature has created as a really great programming language and make it better. You know, that's the other really cool thing I think about with these sort of stories is all of these, you know, taking, you know, look at what nature's done to solve these issues that we have, problems that we might have in our human material world and just, hey, nature's already solved it. There's a great, there's a great bit of software right here. Let's just, you know, boot that up and make it even better. Well, and I remember years ago, before I was probably even at uni, there was research being done on some of the, when you touched on, you know, extraterrestrial life, whatever, obviously we're basing everything on a carbon-based mm-hmm. life form. So there was talk of, well, actually, on other planets, carbon isn't that predominant, mm-hmm. or maybe in other solar systems. So is there a silicone-based life form or something, yeah. you know, still sticking within that? So you wonder if the next step along this, with all the technology we have now, is, well, actually, what happens if we take carbon out and put something else in? Can we recreate something dna like mm-hmm. yeah with a with a different underlying element and i think we're showing that that's at least should be considered as maybe possible they i i yeah this is making me in in a totally different way i'm thinking of mad mike's hughes here with the old flat earth theory i'm wondering if there's a pocket of people we haven't exploited you know we we've We've tried to lure in the flat earthers, Flash yeah. is listeners. Yeah. Wonder if we should be luring in some of the extraterrestrials or uh, at least believers in extraterrestrials. Obviously, we we could lure in actual extraterrestrials. That would be amazing. But, um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure if they have access to all the forums we're on. And if Twitter we could and get them for an so exclusive so podcast interview, yeah. that would that would we term ourselves the saviors of modern media. That would effectively yeah. Gold emboss that yeah. really, wouldn't it? On the front that of the podcast, that would blow the lid yeah. off this thing. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. It's um, I, it's the idea of of improving our own genetics was where I was going with it. But now you're talking about you know building a whole new. We're showing that the the building you can make DNA like things with different molecules with, means yeah. we could potentially. There might potentially exist this form of life out there, or we could even build it. Exactly. How far can we push that boundary? That's that's my challenge to the scientists. Yeah, so it's there. not even like, oh, yeah, we're going to make AI now. It's like, no, we're going to make, like, you know, silicon people or something. Yeah. I mean, look at Hollywood. There's already a lot of silicon people. hey oh. <laughs> hey. Zing, zing, zing. Nice little slam yeah. dunk there. Thank you. Anyway, so that's, I don't know, I thought that was an interesting story. I've been sitting on that for a while, so I'm glad we got to talk about it. And, yeah, cool, we'll man. see where it goes. That was a good one. Okay, well, <clears throat> time for you to have a little rest of your voice, <laughs> and hopefully hopefully in the editing you can take out my horrendous coughing that you've gone through. <laughs> but I've really been struggling the last couple of weeks with a cough, and I was hoping it's gone. So, <clears throat> long-time listener of the show, um, John, you had the opportunity to meet him when you were over at... Uh, Last year, Shout out to John. he posed a segment. <clears throat> yeah, and, well, his, and we'll come on to that. In his taco truck. We'll come out. <clears throat> oh, very much so. I could very much do with a burrito right now. But anyway, long-time listener John suggested um, maybe a segment for the show called John Ass. So John's really interested in science, but he doesn't feel as if he's a scientist. So he's he's like, well, what if I ask? You know, what's a stupid question? And I think we're always told there's no stupid question. <laughs> 
If so he's I've a long time so- listener to this show, he should know most of the stuff we <laughs> end up with is quite stupid. But, yeah, yeah, we give stupid answers, not stupid right, questions. Right, right, right. Yeah, the science we're talking about isn't stupid. It's our take and our yeah. menial understanding uh, yeah. of it. Uh, yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, the menial understanding is the key part. So that's been sort of ruminating with me for a little little bit, and then um, had the opportunity to be on on holiday uh, last month. And there were five potential new listeners, and you know we we we've said before we're not afraid to whore ourselves out. And normally, if you name drop people, that lures them into at least listening to one <laughs> episode. So I'm going to drop in their names in the hope that we get one episode out of them. We can then maybe you know milk a couple more out of them just to boost those numbers even artificially for a week. Uh, so a shout out to Nick, John, Johnny, Tommy, and Gavin. What's up, fellas? Um, who kindly kept me uh, entertained while skiing. Um, otherwise, I would have been skiing alone for a few days. But the question when I was sort of floating this around was, obviously, we're skiing, was, oh, what's the effect? What's the effect that altitude has on the body, or something to do with altitude? So I was like, oh, okay, that's that's quite a good one, and I, and I knew some of it. So I thought, well, let's go on dig. So not really a per se a science story, but a quick look at what altitude I like it does to to the human body. So primarily, the effect of altitude on the human body. It's all about oxygen and blood oxygen levels. That's basically, if you're going to listen to any of this and take any of it, remember that bit. That's the bit that will get you through a pub quiz. So oxygen is carried in the body by red blood cells. Within the red blood cells, there's a molecule called hemoglobin. That absorbs the oxygen, carries it around the body um, in a term called oxygen saturation. So what's the higher the oxygen saturation, the more oxygen you have in the body, and that's generally a good thing. Um, as you go higher up, then uh, the world conspires against mm-hmm. you. It tries to decrease that oxygen level. So the body has uh, two ways of dealing with short-term and long-term measures. So O2 levels, or oxygen levels, O2, uh, they decrease the higher you go. And when you get to around about 8,000 meters, or 26,000 feet, for those of you working in old money still, um, here's here's a uh, media headline for you. That's turned the death Ooh. zone. This is like you know, like when they get to Everest heights and they have to have the bottled oxygen and this kind of stuff. Yeah, right. So you can you can go above that without oxygen, but humans can't sustain life for a prolonged period above right. that. So when you hear people climbing Everest, place like that, and they're doing it unaided and you know without the oxygen, whatever. Yeah. Without oxygen, it basically means they're doing it, but they're doing it quickly and getting back down before their bodies realise where where they right. are in the world. Um, so you can go above it for a short term, but your body isn't thought to be able to acclimatise longer term to that sort of height. So in the short term, what's your body do? Very simply, increases the rate in which you breathe. So you breathe a bit deeper, you breathe a bit faster. Um, and I definitely noticed this when I'm mm-hmm. in the mountains that I can sense my body doing that um but there is a knock-on effect to that so the knock-on effect is that although your oxygen levels increase which is what your body's trying to do also your blood ph so your measure of acid and alkaline that increases so your blood starts to become more alkaline um basically because you're expelling the co2 more quickly right right um so there's a you get a buildup of bicarbonate and it's called respiratory alkalosis um and that's the same sort of effect you get when you see it on films quite a lot, when people are hyperventilating. Mm. 
um, and then people tell them to breathe into a bag. The reason you're trying to do that is to put a little bit more CO2 back into the system right. to restore some balance. Um, so as well as the breathing rate, the heart beats a bit faster, obviously, to pump things around a bit quicker. Um, but your body will also start to suppress um, non-essential functions. So things like digestion or um, circulation to the extremities mm -hmm. and things like that. It will try to keep it around the heart, around the lungs, around the brain, key areas. That's the short term. Um, long term, the body gets really clever. And this is, I'll come on to it in a minute, where athletes can sort of expose some of this. So <clears throat> longer term, and it, some of the longer term ones that start from around about four days in, but some of them take weeks. Um, your body starts to adjust, firstly, to the alkalosis. So the blood becomes more alkaline. Your body adjusts to that after about four days. Basically, the way it does that, it just tells the kidney, start peeing this stuff away. Mm. Rather, than, We're not going to breathe it out, so you need to pee yeah. it away. That's the first change that happens. And as I said, that's quite quick, about four days. But then it starts undergoing some physiological changes as well. So you get um, lower lactate production, um, mainly because it's reducing the amount of glucose that it's breaking down. So you get less lactate forming. So lactate is like the, the acid you get when you've been for a run. Oh, right, like and that. like the muscle soreness. and <clears throat> Yeah, right, yeah. okay, yeah. Um, the plasma volume, so the, the serum-y type of the part of the blood, that actually decreases. Huh. But, but at the same time that increases, the knock-on effect is uh, you increase the number of red blood cells. Right. So your blood effectively gets a little bit yeah, thicker. but able to carry um, more oxygen. But arid, exactly. More red blood cells, you can carry more oxygen. Um, you also then start to get a higher concentration of capillaries, so the little small blood vessels um, in your muscle tissue so that you can disseminate that blood, that mm -hmm. oxygen, even more so. Um, you get an increase in myoglobin, so that's the molecule that carries oxygen into the muscle cells rather than the hemoglobin in mm -hmm. the blood. Uh, you get more mitochondria, so those are the little things that live in the cells that create and burn energy for us. Uh, and you get a better, or better, you get an increased level of aerobic uh, enzyme concentration, so you can you can burn things more efficiently. Um, and your heart actually gets bigger. You know, much as my heart grows for you, Claire, <laughs> it could also also happens at altitude as well. Um, and your blood pressure actually increases as well to try and force the body to oxygenate itself more mm -hmm. readily. So. What do athletes? So athletes are the ones that jump on this. So you, you probably see a lot of it when you know you see athletes training at altitude mm -hmm. and stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. The reason for that is to try and get some of these longer term effects. Because if you can increase the amount of oxygen you burn, then that tends to help your athletic your performance. performance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is pretty common back in my hometown of Calgary because we're situated at like almost a kilometer, you know, above sea level, and so right. athletes come there to train. They grow all this new hemoglobin, and then when they go to compete at sea level, they're like they can burn way more oxygen and there, carry more oxygen. There yeah. you go. There you go. So the way that the body increases its red blood cell is um, through a mechanism powered by EPO, so erythropoietin. That basically is the messenger that tells the body you need to make more red blood cells. EPO. A lot of people probably recognize that there because it's also the thing that athletes abuse. And it's one of the drugs commonly tested for. Yeah, Lance um, Armstrong so if you inject yourself was with using it, that, was he not? There mm -hmm. you go. So therefore, you need to look for the... When people are tested, you're looking for the synthetic version of that. Because obviously, if you're training at altitude, then there's going to be a natural increase mm -hmm. in that already. 
Um, but for athletes, the high altitude actually um, has two effects that contradict each other a little bit. So actually for explosive events, so sprints, long jumps, triple jumps, things like that, um, the reduction in the atmospheric pressure you get as you go higher means there's less resistance. So actually you will be, you'll generally just be quicker or faster or jump longer because there's less air. Right, the oxygen's thinner, the atmosphere's thinner, yeah. Right. Um, Now, the flip of that is for endurance events, so 800 metres or more, there's less oxygen. So actually, you can't perform as well. So your body needs to acclimatise to this. So um, what I discovered, and I didn't know this, is um, organisations like the IAAF and people like that, they actually recognise this as an issue. So... Some world records you'll see have an A next to them, and that means that they were obtained at altitude. Ah. Um, so when I was digging into this, um, I think the Summer Olympics in 68, I think, were held in Mexico City, which is quite high, but and so therefore a lot of world records were broken in sprints and the jumping things there that were never beaten for a long, long time because they were set right. at altitude. So I, I didn't, I yeah. never knew that. So I thought that was quite interesting. It's kind of interesting that they put um, that little asterisk on it too. It's like, yeah, it's good yeah. for you, but come on, you were on the side of a mountain. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I, I didn't know that. Um, but actually what they've shown now is um, athletes should take advantage of the uh, live high, train low philosophy. Okay. Um, so if you're living high, then obviously your body's acclimatizing all the things we said earlier. You get more red blood cells, more mitochondria, more myoglobin. But actually the, the downside to that is training at higher altitude is actually harder. So actually when you come down to lower altitude, you can sustain your training for longer mm. once you've got all these things. So actually live high to get your body acclimatized to it, but then train at a lower right. altitude. Um, so that you can increase your performance. So you're training way. with those natural advantages given, yeah. It, right. Exactly. Okay, that kind yeah, of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, so those are the main bits. And then the other little bits um, I found which um, just made me smile because I've seen it. I don't know if you've ever watched like Top Gear or the Grand Tour type program. Um, so altitude sickness mm-hmm. is the, the big, big adverse effect that altitude has on you. So... Um, get headaches and become a little bit disorientated. So the mildest form is acute mountain sickness. Um, basically, it's your, your body's basically being starved of oxygen slightly. That's what it is. Um, so you get headaches, you might start to vomit, you might get tired, dizziness, confusion. But it can actually progress to more serious things um, like pulmonary edema or cerebral edema, so fluid on the lungs or fluid on the yeah. brain. Um, what made me smile like this is actually one of the things that, um, they will give to try and prevent this or to treat it is Viagra. Oh, I've heard of that, and I can't remember why they do it. Well, because originally that's Viagra and Cialis in that class of chemistry um, were actually looked at to lower hypertension, to lower blood pressure. Oh. Um, and they do that by being a vasodilator and pushing blood to other parts of the body. Uh, and then obviously that side effect was spotted in clinical trials in Viagra, obviously now more commonly prescribed for erectile dysfunction than for people with altitude sickness. It could but, be both. Why yeah, can't it be both? A, well, so there's there's some speculation out there that you know there's not been a lot of clinical trial work done on Viagra for altitude sickness or 
you know, these severe cases of altitude sickness, the edemas. Um, but you find that a lot of people will carry it with them when they're climbing mountains. So if you get, you know, you, you ever get stuck with, you know, caught with some blue pills in your pocket, then you can just say that you're a mountaineer and, you know, you're on your way out of Everest and you may or may not get that off. And if you see that guy coming down uh, the trail in front of you with it, and his pants are an inch shorter, watch out. <laughs> yeah. Well, watch out if he's yeah. behind you more than if he's in front of you, I would say. But, uh, yeah, so, as I said, not really a science story as we normally do, but um, yeah. a little bit into altitude and the effects on physiology. And there you go. So hopefully that that quells some, and maybe maybe it raises more questions than it answers. But there you go. It was, for, for me, it was fun to dig into. I hadn't dug into some of that since since A level stuff, so it's nice. To sort yeah, of no, cool. Touch on a little bit of physiology, and, and uh, you know, nice little twist at the end with the boner pills. Well, you know, I, I've got to keep it real yeah, for our our low brow, our low brow style. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just as we think we're taking it yeah, up. Yeah. The roller coaster plummets yeah, over the that edge. right back into the gutter. Well, sink it straight back into the ground if I was going to give you a segue into our next Yeah, story. man. Wow, geez. We're like rolling through the topics here. But yeah, there's this one, you know, maybe we, we don't have to go so far into it. Um, but all has been quiet on the West Coast for now in terms of earthquakes. So... A recent uh, group, recently, a group of seismologists, that's earthquake people, earthquake scientists. <laughs> Glad yeah. to clarify, I don't want people to just um, wander around with yeah. <laughs> Realized that it's really been like a hundred years since California um, has had one of these huge ground rupturing earthquakes. So the last one that they would consider in this area of ground rupturing earthquakes, where you get like, I'm, I'm assuming that means, you know, <laughs> just exactly as it sounds, that the ground is opening and, and this kind of thing. That's what it says yeah. on the tin. Yeah. Um, was the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And this was a 7.9 um, on the Richter scale. And so in the area of California, I mean, most people have probably heard that it's, it's a high earthquake activity zone because there's five fault lines um, <coughs> all in that, in that area. Uh, and they tend to be mostly these what they call strike-slip faults, or there's a lot of strike-slip faults in that area. Uh, and that's when you have two of the tectonic plates side by side that move in opposite directions, like uh, like trains passing each other is the analogy that gets used. Um, and so they're grinding against each other. And when they slip and move, you get these massive shifts in the position of whatever was on top of those. So you get, you know, the highway cracking open right. and moving, you know, however many feet or whatever to the left or to the right. Um, so that's the cause of these big earthquakes. But it's been about 100 years since they've had one of these big ones. Um, they usually expect that you get to about two to three per century. But like they said, since 1906, they haven't seen one of these big ones. Now, that's not to say that there hasn't been earthquakes and bad earthquakes in the area, but just none on this scale, none on this magnitude. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, at the what I can only imagine are super, super fun conferences earthquake guy <laughs> conferences guy and gal conferences um 
a guy posed this question and he had the really clever title for his presentation is did somebody forget to pay the earthquake bill hey oh yeah wow. science jokes hey eh? uh i wonder if he ran out of time to actually present by the time they finished rolling yeah. in the aisles <laughs> dried their tears and put themselves back yeah. on their seats and caught yeah, their breath exactly. and you know nudged their friend yeah. went oh my yeah. word this guy just Killed wrote it. it all down so they you can know, produce they t-shirts oh, for the next year's conference yeah yeah and then he's like oh shit we don't have time to present now because you guys have just laughed <laughs> you know for an hour constantly maybe that's what happened maybe yeah, it's, not, I mean, you know. it's exactly Sorry. what's happening right now yeah well exactly <laughs> yeah well pause listeners Re- regroup yeah. refocus dry your, dry your eyes get the tissues yeah. you need to there deep breath and, and here back. we go uh, so he posed the question as to why this is, and it, the the idea was: is it a, is it just a fluke? You know, is it a statistical fluke uh, that we just haven't had these, or is there something else that might explain the relative calmness in the fault zones? And so another group of seismologists looked at uh, seismic records going back like a thousand years um, in the five fault zones of California. So I think it's, uh, there's like a Northern San Andreas, a Southern San Andreas, a San Andreas fault, a Hayward fault, and a San Jacinta. My Spanish is terrible. I'm assuming it's a Spanish name. Um, it, it hardly yeah. shows. <laughs> San Jacinto fault. Um, and they found that the chances that this is just a, like a statistical anomaly or the likelihood <coughs> that this all of these faults have been quiet like this by chance is about 0.3%. So they came to the conclusion that it's not by chance and that there might be something that has sort of stabilized uh, these faults for for these hundred years. And the fact that they've been quiet for a hundred years hasn't been hasn't happened for at least a thousand years. So they don't know what it could be. Classic science story. Yeah, we think it's something, but we don't know what it is. Uh, that's calming the faults, but they are saying that, you know, maybe the next century could be a bit more active than, than usual. Uh, like I said before, they expect about two to three per hundred years. So maybe you see something like three to six or something like that. Now they, you know, go on to caution, of course, that just because it hasn't happened in a hundred years doesn't mean that it will double next year. But with all of these things, volcanoes, Earthquakes, this kind of stuff, anything tectonic in nature, um, it's it's statistical, it's stats. So I think the quote uh, from the article I was reading was the statistical dice may be loaded in favor of more earthquakes in the next century. Uh, so watch out, California. I mean, maybe it turns out that the oh. Rock and his mega hit San Andreas is just foreshadowing the next the next big one maybe the rock knows something well, we don't maybe. well when when you see the rock doesn't live in california anymore that's probably when you oh. think, mm. clue clue the hollywood elite i don't trust them yeah yeah they're probably spreading ebola around just to kill yeah. off people and setting off earthquakes doesn't when they want yeah so. keeping keeping us sheeple subjugated typical yeah and then they're just going to throw us all into the gods of the earth that live below the fiery death. <laughs> Maybe. Man, why don't they invite us to the earthquake but, conference, you know? Yeah, I can think so. 
You know, we would slay yeah. at that conference. Yeah. Well, that's some earthquake news. So get ready, California. If you're listening in California and you weren't already yeah, prepping, start, start now. Then start now. Yeah. So what would that be? Well, I guess, well, the tingers you like, but if that fault opens up where you yeah, are, you're you... more or less hooped. Nothing you can do there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just move. Yeah. I hear, I hear Utah's well, nice. Well, I was going to say you moved to Britain, but you know we've got Brexit going on. We're yeah. shutting our borders. So... Britain's closed. Nice try. Yeah, no room at yeah. the inn here. Canada's too cold. Don't go, go sleep there. in the. Well, there's a few issues going on in Canada which we've not touched on today. But your, you know, fantastic prime minister that was being seen as the uh, the future of world leadership. Yeah. Mm. He's got some fault lines opening up in his government. That's for sure. Oh, see what you've mm-hmm. done there. That's a story for another day, though, and I'd be happy to get into it. But that is, we'll leave that for okay. another day uh, because if I, I mean, do we have time for more? Because you got, you got, you got to run, don't you? Well, that, let's do one more because I've done the research and you know I feel short. Let's not waste it. We'll, it's it's a quick one. So, and let's do it before I forget about it because aptly it's about memory loss, um, or more aptly it's about reversing memory mm-hmm. loss. So um, the the, the headline is, Applying Mild Electric Shocks to the Brain Can Reverse Memory Loss in Older People. Ah. Okay. So, um... So my so grandma won't forget my birthday in... anymore if I just zap her in the brain. Uh, no, she will. She doesn't love you. She'll, uh, <laughs> not that she's forgotten. She's just chose not to send you uh, a birthday card. Um, so there's some research being done out of Boston University. Um been published in nature neuroscience uh this this month or last month um basically um it's the one of the co-leaders dr robert reinhardt uh the paper's shown that stimulating working um working memory part of the brain can reconnect circuits that become damaged or faulty with age um so working memory actually declines over over time as i think you know most people are sort of acutely aware um and working memory, what that means is the, the short-term memory. So it's the memory we use for immediate tasks. So if you're doing a quick maths calculation, if you're reading, mm-hmm, if you're mm-hmm. um, trying to remember a shopping list uh, or in, and some decision-making pieces, that's that's the memory that, as you get older, starts to right. decline. Um, and what they've shown in other work is that the neocortex and the frontal lobes that are responsible for that, basically the... the the neurons, the circuits, and that become disconnected. Ah. Um, so what they've shown in this work is actually by stimulating that part with mild electric therapy actually causes those circuits to reconnect. Hmm. So what they did for this study is they took um, 42 younger adults, so between the ages of 20 and 29, uh, 42 older adults, um, so 60 to 76, and they basically gave them a spot-the-difference type task. Um, and what they found was that the older group was slower and less accurate than the younger group until dun, dun, dun. they basically put scalp electrodes on and gave them 30 minutes of mild electrical stimulation um, <laughs> in the older group. And then suddenly their scores came up to match the uh, younger Mild group. electrical um, stimulation. So as I was reading this, I kept having flashbacks to that opening scene in Ghostbusters where Bill Murray is electrocuting the shit out of the guy for not being able to telepathically read what's, <laughs> right. uh, 
on, on the card. That, that's that's basically what I had in my mind. I'm sure it was way more scientific than that, but that's what I had. Um, but what they also shown was the effects uh, lasted for... And they only went up to 50 minutes, but the, the effects lasted for up to the 50 minutes. Oh, so, so you shocked them and then let them do the task. Stop shocking them, let them do the task, and for 50 minutes, they're just as good as the yeah. younger group. But then after that, they revert yeah. back to... Well, then they stopped at fifty minutes, so they oh, don't okay. know. I'm su- I'm assuming they did revert, but yeah. so that's the the next way of testing. So, um, so they've said that obviously this is early stage work. It's in healthy volunteers, but they're saying it could show a new way to boost brain function um, in those with age related decline, so dementia, Alzheimer. Dude, patients. this is I can already um, see this getting a, like into the you know wacky health nut community where they're like zapping wow. themselves. If you just zap yourself every morning, Incre- increases brain function, and then take your you know neurogenic uh, pills and all those. Flash, my friend. This is why I love you. This is why I love you. So, um, Doctor Robert Reinhardt, the guy that's coding this, don't do that. Um, this is early stages, um, you know, healthy volunteers. Um, quote, much more basic science has to be done first. Now, I would say slapping electrodes onto somebody's scalp and giving them an electric shock. It's not quite up there with the four base pairs of DNA that, you know, we've just been talking about creating artificially. How much lower, basically, do you have to go? Yeah, but then, the next piece is... Right. But, but then you've hit the nail on the head. There are already companies working to bring this technology right. to market. Yeah, yeah. So basically, they've taken the TENS device that can be used for pain relief and for birthing and for, obviously, if you want to create a six-pack, uh, you just put the electrodes on one. Just don't stick it on your abs. Stick yeah, it on yeah. your scalp. Bob's your uncle. You'll yeah, be a brainiac. For 50 minutes at least. Well, you know, at least yeah. 50 minutes. You know, maybe maybe longer. So while I was going through you that got a, story, you got an old car battery you're not using. <laughs> Hook it up. Connect it yeah. to your nuts and see what happens. Well, so as I was reading this, it's like, well, hold on, this just taking me back to like the you know when you see films or you read articles from you know mental asylums and in the archaic um, days, things like that from years yeah. ago when they gave yeah electric shock therapy, and a little bit of me was thinking, well, surely you just you're scaring me into making me think more about this because if I know if I don't think you can give me an electric shock. But anyway, as I was reading this and reviewing this story, there was a link um, about the other uses of um, electrotherapy. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, you know, sure, these are all outdated now. You know, we're not, you know, strapping mental patients down and, you know, people that are gay and trying to zap it out of them. Zap the the gay away, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a slogan, wasn't it? Once upon a time, and in some, I know in some countries that does still persist, which yeah. is incredible. Um, but no, so other uses that um, have um, papers behind them, science behind them. So uh, the treatment of severe medical resistant depression can be treated yeah. with electrical magnetic therapy. stimulation is another one that. I think is in this area as well. They do it for depression and for you know imp- improvement of cognitive tasks. So I wonder what the connection is there. But anyway, no, I don't. The strong attraction I got for you right there, Flash. Oh <laughs> um, my god! <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, 
vocabulary recall skills that improved with uh, mild electroshock Ooh, therapy. I, I'm always forgetting my words. Well, surely that's surely that's torture, isn't it? I'll say anything you want if you yeah. stop shocking me. <laughs> Basically, that's the way I read that. Um, math skills I, can be improved. I also need no, don't think you're all going to become. Yeah, don't think you can become Stephen Hawking overnight just by zapping yourself a few times. But, and I guess this relates earlier to the the working memory. You know that short term memory piece. Um, boosting self control. Hmm. I guess, you know, electro collar or something like that. Yeah, this is what that sounds like. Walk past that gate. What are we, were you just talking like yeah. Pavlovian training or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then the one that really got me, and then I had to dig into this a little bit, was um, it's been shown to reduce the intention to commit violent acts and sexual assault. The intention. So I, it's like this I need to read yeah. more about. And this was literally just before we came on, on air. So it was really quick. So... Um, basically, if you stimulate the prefrontal cortex, which is the part that's responsible for decisions, for willpower, behavior recognition, um, it's been shown that you can reduce the intention to commit violent acts uh, and or sexual assault. So um, the paper that this was based upon was they took 82, in quotes, healthily minded volunteers, 35 of which were male, 45 were female, Um and it was reported they were less likely to imagine themselves engaging in violent behaviour or sexual assault. Basically what they did is they gave them um, two hypothetical vignettes, mm. two scenes. Um, one depicting um, a scene of violence. So it's about a guy in a bar who goes to the toilet and comes back and finds another guy chatting to his girlfriend and it, it kicks off. Um, and then the second story was about a couple that um, have been friends for years and then they admit that they finds each other's attractive and then they go back to her place and one thing leads to another and she kind of says no but one thing leads to another and very me too so they they yeah yeah exactly yeah this was about 10 years before the me too i'm guessing but then what they did is they got these 82 volunteers to rate their likelihood to commit the assaults or to commit the sexual assault in each of these um but i love the fact one of the ways they did this was they gave them a voodoo doll um, with, I think they said, 52 pins. And I presume there's another study that looks at this, but the number of pins that you put into the voodoo doll is a direct measure to the aggression. So the more pins in the doll, the more aggressive, and therefore the more likely uh, they were to conduct uh, the assault or the sexual Weird. assault. And so then if you if you stimulated them, they were less likely to? They were less likely. Huh. I mean, it seems like it could just be like, yeah, like a, it somehow reduces impulsivity or something like that. You know what I mean? Like I can see that. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, these methods, like whenever, I mean, we've talked about this before. Some of the methods behind some of these studies seem so implausible. Like, okay, you're giving these two scenarios. What would you do? And now there's this voodoo doll that's a, some kind of a proxy for would you do it? Would you not do it? Like to to anyone listening, they probably like, this sounds like bullshit. Like this sounds like bullshit science. To yeah. me, it kind of sounds like I need to read it to be like, well, how is this? You know, well, obviously we're presuming that they have some established methods and that these are the best ways to do this. Because even when you first started, they were like, it's like, it, it reduces your, your, it was an intention to commit. So I was like, do they have people yeah. out there that they get? They're like, hey, are you thinking about committing an assault? Come in for this trial. We need to, well, I, we need I, I to was, take a look. I was thinking they have people that literally, that's all they do every day is they just commit assault yeah. and sexual assault. Like criminals, yeah. 
and then they zap them and they go, oh, no, I don't yeah. want to do that anymore. I think I'll just go and get a biscuit. Yeah, and have yeah. a I don't know. It's interesting, but I, I think it, like, it is, it's cool because, like I said, there is other work out there that does magnetic stimulation on um for depression i mean it's a it's a treatment option for depression at the moment i don't know that everyone anyone fully understands how it works but they've also done the same thing with like um cognitive tasks so there was a radio lab um episode it's a podcast radio show in the u.s where the person investigating this technology the journalist or whatever it was like a uh, accuracy a shooting accuracy task so how quickly could okay. you shoot targets and how accurate were you terrible first run through never really exp had any experience with this task <coughs> or shooting really so terrible at it as you might imagine they do this stimulation and i believe it was magnetic maybe it was electricity too um and then scores improved drastically like was way better marksman uh, after this so there's obviously something going on there where it sort of, maybe it focuses the brain, like you, like there's this link now that you're talking about with the connections in there, re, reforming some of the connections. Maybe it's just like clearing the cobwebs out. You know, you got all these neuronal, neuronal connections that work on, you know, electricity, basically. So you just zap, you send some current through, and maybe some old connections that weren't being used all of a sudden they got a fresh jolt of of juice yeah. through it and then that sort of reawakens them i mean this is my <clears throat> like this is, yeah this is my you know total total speculation on that as how this could work because i have yeah. no idea but it's just like you're just like flushing out the pipes you know just like <clears throat> with this electricity and then <clears throat> for you know 50 minutes your brain has just got all these connections and ready to go and it also makes me think of Buzzed like superhero stuff like you know, this this sounds like something in a comic. He got zapped by electricity, and then all of a sudden had these powers. You know, it's like, well, maybe there's some kind of truth to that. Maybe there's something in it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you heard it here first. You know, with our mix of new DNA and lightning bolts, who knows what we might create? Yeah, it's really science is really just so simple. You need a couple chemicals, some petri dishes, and a car battery. I mean. <laughs> and a shitload of electricity. And some yeah. some risque scenarios and a voodoo doll. Yeah. <laughs> ah, it's been a fun one um i know we've got one more on the the benches but for the interest of time i'm gonna ask you yes, to keep, yeah, yeah, yeah. keep that one on the i mean seat i'd love to keep speculating about so, electricity and where we could shock and what well, we could shock and what it might do for us but you know I, i'm i'm going off straight after the show to plug myself in because i'm feeling so angry about brexit <laughs> that you know i want to decrease the fact that i'm going to go out and stab somebody um, so, uh, in summary, um, you know, what have we done today? Well, firstly, you know, if the earth moved for you, you're probably in California, you mm -hmm. probably want to move. Um, I don't know. Is it a, it can't just be a British song. The, uh, the Okie Koki. Did you ever use that in parties when you were like a kid? Did you mean the Hokey Pokey? Oh, Okie Okie. Well, no, that's something totally different flash. And if you're thinking that, you probably electrocute <laughs> yourself because that's. The Okie Koki, in, out, in, out, yeah, shake Yeah, we back. call that the Hokey Pokey. Oh, Hokey Koki oh. is what we called it yeah. here. Um, so just that to me is what Brexit is like at the moment. One minute we're in, next minute we're out. One minute we're in, next minute we're out. Um, you know, mate, we've talked about it before, you know, designer babies, designer this, designer that. 
maybe the the future will be well i want new dna yeah. i don't you know the old four base pair dna that's old news i want the Dude, new give base me the pairs. you know give, give me, me this the windows model. 11 update on my dna yeah yeah exactly yeah dna right. 2.0 um so we touched on that uh and then i think in summary it's really important to end on if you're thinking of raping somebody yeah don't just go and plug yourself yeah. into the wall for <laughs> half an hour and that'll, that'll take a, care of that for you. You got a paper clip, right you away. got a wall socket, there you go. <laughs> go enjoy yourself. Um, Flash, it's been great to be back on the uh, the podcasting road with you now that you're back from your international duties. Yeah, well, and you're back from vacation, jeez. Well, yeah, I'm going off again now. <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've, I've discovered that actually I quite like vacations. It's the future. Or holidays. I'm not calling them vacations, right. holidays. Um as ever, listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, uh, Instagram, Twitter, at 2 brad for you Myself personally, at Bradley W. Hayes. Flash, if they want to get hit you up on Twitter, what should they do? Other than uh, yeah, at BVampiredon, as always. Uh, and the other thing we didn't mention at the top of the show, actually, uh, Flash, you've you've nailed it. You've, you've tried to push us into more fields than anyone else. We're now... No, live on Spotify. Which That's right. Not yeah, we're we should be on more platforms than ever before. So, Spotify, Google, Google so, Play, podcasts. I forgot about the play. Yeah. So there's literally no escape. Well, from yeah, no escape, no excuse. Get on board. Okay. Tell your yeah. friends if you've told your friends and they were like, yeah. "Oh yeah, but how do I get it? Oh, I don't want to. Do, I don't want to do iTunes." Well, yeah, no excuse. You got Spotify. I don't know anyone in the world that doesn't use Spotify. No, and if, you know, maybe, maybe your friends forgot to go and listen, in which case yeah. jog their memory, either with electroshock therapy or just by saying, well, they're now on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, yeah. all that good stuff. You don't need a, you don't need your your taser, but hey, if it helps. But yeah, exactly. We're we're not, you know, we're not saying use it, but we're not saying yeah. don't use it. I'm saying, saying I would advocate threatening people to listen to the show with a taser. Well, no, then I'd say you need to shock <laughs> Oh, yourself. right, yeah. Okay. Blast, because that's, that's violent behavior. But, you know, if if you're using that taser for medical purposes to jolt, you know, memory cells yeah. back into forming new connections, if then If you need then, a reminder to on subscribe board. on any of these platforms. Yeah. Yeah, then that could be okay. one way of doing it. Other ways are available just to cover ourselves legally. Do you think we've dodged the bullet on that one for our lawyers? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see if Spotify and... kicks us off in the next couple of days. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's true. Uh, Flash, as always, it's been great. Um, stay safe. And listeners, stay safe. Keep listening. Yeah, see you next pleasure's time, always mine. Thank you all for listening. Catch you next time. Cheers. Right, we just flush through these stories and off we go. Ah, hilarious.
Hilarious. And if this ends up in the pre-roll at or the post-roll at the end, then and we don't touch on the toilet story, people are going to be like, what are they talking about? What are all these shit jokes? <laughs> no, Not that I think I, any people, anybody I, takes that part of the show seriously. Well, I, I also think most of our jokes are shit. So I guess it <laughs> goes either way, really, doesn't it? It works, yeah. It works. All right.